0: Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Hayman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Hayman Center Archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Hayman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Bransco,
1: And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on April 2nd, 2019, honoring the work of Claudio Lomnitz the Campbell Family Professor of Anthropology, and an affiliated professor in the Department of Latin American and Iberian Cultures at Columbia University. Professor Lomnitz has written numerous books about the history, culture, and politics of Mexico, and is also a newspaper columnist and a playwright. In his 2018 book, Nuestra America, Utopia y Persistencia en una Familia Judía, which translates as Our America, Utopia and Persistence of a Jewish Family, Professor Lomnitz turns his scholarly attention to his own family history.
0: Professor Lomnitz's book traces the lives of his maternal grandparents, Misha Adler and Noemi Milstein, and their journey from the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires through the Soviet Union, Romania, Peru, Colombia, Germany, Israel, the United States, Chile, and Mexico. Professor Lomnitz calls his book a minor key history because of its deep focus on the lives, decisions, and social and political struggles of a single Jewish immigrant family. But through its attention to the details of family history, Nuestra America offers a new perspective on some of the most important events and figures of the 20th century, and uncovers new cultural histories yet to be written.
1: First, we will hear a response to Professor Lomnitz's book from Graciela Montaldo, a professor in the Department of Latin American and Iberian cultures at Columbia. Professor Montaldo studies Latin American culture and politics from the 20th century to today. In her comments, she reflects on the title of Professor Lomnitz's book to show how his focused family history illuminates much larger themes in the cultural and intellectual history of Latin America, including immigration, cosmopolitanism, and political emancipation. Then, we will hear Professor Lomnitz himself describe some of the challenges of writing this kind of book and recount some of his family stories.
2: In 1891, four years before Jose Martí died for his country's independence, the Cuban writer published the brief and influential essay, Our America, from exile in New York. From the United States, Marquise Hershey criticised the development of Latin American nations over the course of the 19th century. He argues that elites, elites, el- sorry, elites did not, uh, not understand and did not accept the plurality of Latin American populations and as a result their government failed. Martí claims a mestizo America, but he also claims our America, that is, an America free from interference by the United States. His statement is therefore double-decolonizing. Many writers and scholars have discussed Martí's text, and the expression our America is not uncommon in Latin American culture. It is clear that that Nuestra America, Utopia y Persistencia de una Familia Judía, by Claudia Lomnitz, um, is not a rewriting of Martí's text. But it is also clear that this is in dialogue with that text in an exchange that is intense, oblique, and full of reverberation of Latin American culture. What the book does in fact rewrite for the 21st century, is the idea of belonging. Claudio's book combines two main genres, cultural history and family biography, and it combines them so well that the book reads like a novel. or leads at a narrative that follows a family as his lips through through the most significant events of the 20th century in the West, first in Europe and then in America. The characters of this family, this family novel, are, however, real people who make decisions but also have to change those decisions in response to historical events. Each character seems to be both a protagonist and witness at the same time. They create history, but they do so from a space of minority. And there, their lives give testimony about history. Through the family history, we learn the persecution of Jews in small towns in Western Europe in early 20th century, and the complex ideological web of emancipatory (coughs) emancipatory projects. Through the moving to America, we learn about the transcultural context of emancipation and integration. The historical sources are perfectly articulated with the family archive. Both have the same level of significance in the book. I think this is a fundamental dimension of this text: History with all the disciplinary protocols shows us events and occurrences. It shows us the raw actions of power. But particular lives shows us the hesitation, the decision-making, the agency of people at critical moments of social and political experience. All the family members have decisions to make whether to leave or remain in a city or in a country, pay a fortune to obtain a visa or a passport, protect or abandon a little girl who cries during an escape, Uh, abandon or remain in the family home, change professions, and change languages. All of these decisions must be made by the most emblematic character of the book, the great Nucleus of the family's life, the grandfather Misha Miguel, in the double languages of la- multiple multiple exiles, he is the axis that opens and closes the book. He symbolically carries the entire family history. He caused, until almost the very end of his life the political and cultural project of a free. Cosmopolitan community of Jews around the world. The, that project involves articulating and locating Jewishness and the left in a multicultural world transversed by dialogues, translations, and attempts to create communities in context of war, genocide, discrimination, and forced migration. All the while, the, father, the grandfather continues to nourish intellectual projects from a position of minority. That is how Claudio described it. And I quote, the history of my grandfather is full of fleeting moments spent with transcendent characters. He is a celic, uh, end of quote. Claudio places his grandfather in the marginal space of a cultural elite and he refers to his grandfather's friendship with the leftist Peruvian um, ideologue um, José Carlos Mariátegui, his brief correspondence with Sigmund Freud, and his relationship with the poet uh, Pablo Neruda, the president of Israel, Romulo Gallegos and Violeta Parra, among many others. This history reminds us of other intellectuals in dark times, those who had to find ways to continue their projects while they're also fighting for their lives. The times lived by Rosa Luxemburg, Walter Benjamin, Brecht, Hermann Broch, and others, were also lived by hundreds of thousands of displaced persons, men and women, whose stories are unknown. Many of their stories are transatlantic, inverse version of the colonial journey, journey with the protagonists that go to America, not to conquer it, but rather to save themselves. Claudio's book is in dialogue with many texts, but I want to consider its relationship to another important essay from Latin American culture, published in 2008, also in Spanish, some memorias by the historian and UC Berkeley professor Julio Aperindongi. The two texts understand individual history as the result of a dense web of of events. Towns, communities, and families are the nucleus around which individuals develop, make decisions, take actions, surrender, and reappear and both uh, books tell transatlantic, multilingual and pluricultural stories. Returning to the title of the book, we notice the citation of Marty's essay. But beyond the literal citation, it is also a citation of the ambiguity of Martí's hours, the hour of, a, of an exile who writes about Hispanic America while living in New York. In fact, the possessive pronoun refers to the dispossession of whatever one means by nation, ethnicity, language, and culture. Martí, our, is always in another place. It is that which does not belong to us. It is the alienated community. Claudio's book comes along and completes that dispossession. Our America is Jewish America, European, Indigenous, Creole, Native, Immigrant America. It's South America and North America. Our America is a place of constant transit. It is and should be also the place of whoever wants to call it ours. But there is another very strong word in the title, Utopia. America occupies a prominent place in the, history of, in the history of the utopic thought, as we know. From a Europe at war, it would have been easy to identify an American utopia for those who were destined to die. But this is not the case. I believe that in this book, the idea of utopia resembled that of Charles Ranciere, who says, and I quote, if modern utopia has a meaning, it is surely not in the myth of the island that is nowhere, but on the contrary, in this possibility to showing the adequation of the text and reality at every point. Our America is not a happy place. it never was, it was rather the place to reformulate the relationship between world and things. By way of conclusion, I want to add a personal note. Uh, I think the Spanish language has a gift, the use of diminutives, and throughout the book, Claudio refers to his grandparents um, as his abuelita and abuelito uh, in the diminutive form, and this is a way to express affection and respect, but also to protect those who suffered and his grandparents protected the family, including the Jews who had to migrate, and the friends in Europe and America. This book rescues these stories as a path of displacement and losses, but also friendship and dialogue. And above all, the book is a link in the family chain from ancestor to the future generations, who must learn about the past in order to create new projects. Claudio gave us a luminous book in our own dark times. Thank you. you.
1: Next, we will hear Professor Lomnitz describe his approach to writing about his own family history as a scholar. Professor Lomnitz will also recount some of his family stories which demonstrate the diversity of the cultural and historical questions that his book considers.
3: First, thank you. Thank you all for joining in the celebration of the book, which I think is an important thing to do because the main thing about these things is that they exist, and that's it, but good or bad, they exist. And I think that is something to celebrate. And I'm very moved by the fact that I thought I'd say a couple of things that the, the book begins with a with a reflection on uh, language dispossession and my own uh, lack of first of all loss of a number of the languages that were needed to write the book in <clears throat> four languages uh, that were absolutely necessary in five that would have been nice to have and in that sense the book isn't, isn't the book of a historian because uh, I don't think any. Historian, for his rightful mind would write a book where they don't have half of the languages that are needed to write it. But because it's about, um, it's a personal book, and I, fi- I I figured nobody else would write it, then I wrote it anyway. You know, in, so that there is a problem of language loss that's deeply ingrained. I think the second is uh, the problem of writing in Spanish. Um, I think that one of the things about writing in Spanish, for me, was that, um, <clears throat> in, I had not written a book in Spanish in, in a long time, but, uh, Spanish is supposed to be my mother tongue. It is my mother tongue. It's the first language that I learned from my language of the home. Um, but I've always felt some, in some ways, more insecure in Spanish than in English, because English is supposed to be my second language so the problems that I have in English are all justified. Everything that I do well is praised and whatever problems I have are amply justifiable in. whereas the truth of the matter is that my Spanish is probably, not, certainly not better than my English and in, in some ways more deeply insecure exactly because it's supposed to have this this charge of belonging, which, uh, which it does have, actually. But it doesn't stop me from making a lot of mistakes. Um, <clears throat> in, so writing in Spanish was, not a way, for me to come to terms also with, with this. And I took, enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think that writing from uh, one's limitations is the only place that I know from which I can write. And this book is kind of charged with that. It um, doesn't have the expertise. It doesn't have the expertise also in a number of other ways. Uh, there's Jewish history, which is a huge field. And it's not my field. And uh, there's a huge amount that I don't know that I had to uh, you know, waffle through. Um <clears throat> Peruvian history in the 1920s, Colombian history of the 1930s and 40s, the history of Israel in the early 50s, the return to colombia in the 1950s even some of the chilean history that is there is also not uh, it's not something that i feel a lot of mastery over so it's a book that doesn't have a lot of mastery in it um and i think that i was kind of glad about that but that is that i could just go ahead and sort of fuck it <laughs> i'll write it anyway that thing. And it's in some ways it's a it's a it has to do with age and the other the other uh, the other thing about it I think is that um, it's to do with family history and one of the things that's, that I thought about a bit was today we are in a we're in an era where family history is like a, a it's a moment in life rather than um, some specialized thing. And here in the U.S. even more so because you have like the college essay, you know. Um, So the the process of narrating obsessively one's autobiography is something that people rehearse here from a very early age. But I think it's not only an American thing. I think it's maybe especially heightened here. Um, So we all have this moment of. Uh, or our aspect of our lives, it has to do now with writing our family histories, or thinking about our family histories, or telling, or toying with the idea of thinking. about Now, the problem with writing our family histories is, I think we all sort of go through this now. Um, the problem is that there's no reason why anybody else would want to read it, <laughs> no. and I think that's that's uh, an issue. Uh, so I feel very privileged, you know, that it was published. And, um, but if it hadn't, I think I would have written it anyway for a more private uh, circulation and use. One of the interesting things that has to do with the issue of migration that, in the pres- that this book is centrally about, um, and that is that the, the migrants are always sort of there and not there, and uh, in doing work and not doing work. And, uh, their work is is, is not recognized. And um, thinking a little bit about the kind of work that was done by my grandparents, especially in the 1920s and uh, the 30s and 40s, um, was hard because some of, especially in the 20s, my grandparents were very close to Jose Carlos Mariátegui who was a venerable uh, figure in in Latin American history of the 20th century. Marxist, and <clears throat> they were very close friends. Uh, you well, know, it was hard for me to figure out what attracted them to one another and what they might have given one another. And so, this this fleeting aspect of um, their presence in, in these histories of exile, because they really had to—they were kicked out of Peru in 1930. They arrived in Peru in 1924. Um, <clears throat> then they went to France Then went back to Nova and my grandfather's hometown to try to get his parents out they stayed there for a couple of years then they went back to Colombia in 36 uh, and then the, the migration story continues but it's it's uh, that kind of story so then you have a um, um, this this Zelig effect and When I say this, I don't mean to diminish their work, because I think that they did do a lot of work. But most of their work was around survival and militancy. Only a little uh, ended up surviving as in writing, as uh, published work There was some in editorial work. Um, But I do think that there are points of mutual uh, influence, in particular around for instance, in the, in the proving case around Mishinism, where I think that uh, the Jewish problem and uh, Mariategui's admiration for Jewish cosmopolitanism on the one hand, uh, and the, the Jewish interest in uh, kind of a messianic uh, return of the, of the repressed people led both, let's say, my grandparents and my grandfather in particular into the tradition, but also, I think, helped formulate um, the ideas around that Mariati was generating, which are a very particular set of ideas. Um, So in that sense, I think that there is, to me, some discovery that is relevant for broader South American um, intellectual history that has to do exactly with these um, transatlantic connections and the way in which minor key histories like this one um, nevertheless actually were part of the formulation of political and cultural projects in, in the region. So maybe I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Now you will hear Professor Lonmitz discuss the cultural significance of his grandfather's decision not to become a door-to-door salesman a common occupation for Jewish immigrants to Latin America. Afterward, he will describe the most surprising bit of family history he discovered during his research, the origin of his father's name.
3: I think that, uh, that this business, these are door-to-door salesmen, and they're, they're, I, the history of this has yet to really be, be written. Um, it's important throughout Latin America, uh, and the people who, were these peddlers, Uh, were Jews or uh, Arabs, let's say, from the old Ottoman Empire. And they invented a new form of salesmanship that didn't exist in, in, at least in South America, which was sale by credit of clothes. and uh, Because uh, the the particular suits were a a major class bar in South America at the time, um, you could sell These suits by uh, uh, in with the installment and uh, and therefore kind of help I think in the process that one usually associates in Latin American history with the rise of sort of the national popular the 30s the 20s um, is also is also a moment where you have a a shift and a, a blurring of certain kinds of class boundaries. That very much includes a sartorial element that these people were involved, and in. nobody's written that history. Um, it's a very interesting history, but it's also <coughs> interesting from the point of view of the national geography because um, these 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 Jews in this case were often selling in provincial cities, and so for instance, I had an uncle, had an uncle um, uh, who, when I met him, you know, was, first of all, quite decrepit, and second, not a big talker. Uh, and uh, I thought he was extraordinarily boring in general. And then I found out, writing this book, that A, he taught mandolin in Huancayo. He had a, he had a, um, a, an estudiantina, this is a, and there were pictures of him with his, like, t- teaching mandolin and in in the Sierra of Peru in the 1920s. And he also rode a unicycle and with my grandfather, who was his <laughs> manager, tried to, uh, set up these shows where he, who was the king of the unicycle and the mandolin. Now, um, it's, it's not hard to be king of that particular phenomenon. And, um, I don't think that there uh, are there any serfs in that, <laughs> uh, 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 or even trainees? You know, but so what's interesting there is the two things. One is that these clappers. Are actually have the pulse of life in lower class neighborhoods in Lima and in all of these towns and some of them become communists. Regman, uh, for example, who was the treasurer of the Communist Party in Peru, who while, was from the same town as my grandfather. Oh, a number of them came from the same town. Um, and so there's that, that you have people who don't speak the language well, but who actually know some of the popular culture. There's one writer in Yiddish, a guy called Salomon Erbansky from Colombia, who was a clapper who wrote uh, short stories and the like in Yiddish that were later translated and hailed, I talk about that a little bit in the book, hailed by <laughs> some Colombian writers as some of the early work that actually deals with Colombian popular culture rather than with, let's say, nature and this kind of uh, thing. So A, you have that uh, influx of migrants into a kind of lower class society that was not very accessible to the classes. Uh, but my grandfather didn't want to be in commerce. And he, let, he spent his whole life trying not to be in commerce and failing, actually, um, mm-hmm. often. Um, um, he also failed in commerce. Um, but, um, but he couldn't entirely extricate himself because of how difficult they are their life was. Um, I think that this refusal uh, to be a clapper did uh, place him in a cir- circle uh, that at that time existed in South America, it was tied together often by correspondence. Um, in, so you have a lot of communication between people in various South American capitals that is happening at that time uh, through journals and through, and through letters and through common friends and the like. And I think that that was a world that my, my grandparents were definitely a part of, wherever they went. It's interesting, there you had a kind of republic of letters mm-hmm. of a certain kind that did exist. Um, and uh, this refusal was, was really important the other th- for that. The other reason why it was important is that he arrived in, in Lima when he was 18, so he studied philosophy at the University of San Marcos. So and did a thesis on Karl Marx, and um, so uh, this is part of a militancy with Mariachi, and uh, in some way it did allow their story to be one where they had these strange interlocutors. So even when they were living in very small uh, provincial cities, like in Colombia, in Tuluá, in Manizales, in Sogamoso, you know, so lots of. Uh, really, second run or third, third run cities. Um, they were always like my grandfather was, you know, interested in uh, what's his name, uh, Jorge Sachs, the famous uh, novelist of Colombia, uh, because you know he wrote this great, fi- famous novel *María*, which was considered like the greatest um, South American uh, romantic novel. Um, but you know, Jorge Sachs the 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 whole context of this is the Valley of Gauka where where two is and uh Sachs, from my grandfather's point of view was Jewish. And so uh, so you know you had already had one there, you know, uh, you know a hundred years before. So there's all this kind of um, what Kathy Verdery called in her study of Romanian intellectuals protochronism, that is the sense that there was always someone from your own minoritarian group that Invented this before, you know, but we, we've already done this. We've already been here, you know, so Horky Sax was already here. I mean, these guys were alone like you can't believe. I mean, at a certain level, they were, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that the refusal of the clapper, on the one hand, probably marginalized a little bit from some of the ethnic group, although not entirely. Um, but also allowed, I think, membership in another in another imagine, space of the imagination. I think mm-hmm. to me, the most surprising thing actually had to do with my father. My father died a few years ago, and the, the, the writing you know, emerged around that. And there's stuff in there about my father's. There's a discovery there about my father's name, which was a big discovery for me because it turned out that my bra- my father was born in Germany. To achieve it in 38, it turned out he'd never told us that his maternal grandfather had been murdered uh, before he was born. Before my father was born, two years, three years before my father was born, and the story came out when I was reading the book. My father was already dead. Um, the memoir that my father half wrote mentioned that that his grandfather had been murdered. He'd never told us this, but it said that he'd been. Grandfather's maternal grandfather was a rich merchant, in, in, and it said that he'd been killed by an employee. Um, but then, my mother, I asked my mother, who was already having memory problems, serious memory problems, whether she remembered anything. She said, Yeah, I do. Uh, your grandmother told me once in a hush-hush tone, but it was she. He'd been murdered by the Nazis very early in the Nazi movement, and uh, so I started. I, I, I was. We were going to go to Berlin because I got a fellowship to be in Berlin last year for the year. Uh, well, I'll go. And you know, I, I know the date of death of this guy. I'll be able to find who's murdered in Manhattan. Uh, I can find this in the paper. You know that. I don't get a historian to do that. You know and and find out. But before doing it, I looked it up in the, in the, in the computer and Google thinking maybe, you know, uh, and it pops up, you know, right at the start, uh, in a Wikipedia entry, about um, a guy named Villabal Fisher, who was one of his assassins, who, it turned out, had been one of the three assassins of uh, Walter Rathenau, a month after the assassination of Mike grandfather, Walter Ratnau, was uh, the foreign minister in the Weimar Republic, who was of Jew- Jewish origin and who had been murdered by this group called uh, the Breiters. Uh, and so uh, the, the three murderers, uh, one of them had participated in the assassination of my great grandfather. And uh, then I wrote to this historian who wrote a book about the assassination of Ratna, who's a professor in the Humboldt University, and he sent me the material, sure enough, and he knew about the, the murder of my grandfather because it had come out in the Ratna affair, which had been a very big public affair. So all of a sudden I find out that this great-grandfather's name, I had all, we had always been told that my grandfather, my father has a bizarre name, it's C-I-N-N-A. C-I-N-N-A it's a Latin name, and we always got these weird stories, all the way. how the hell is he called that Why, who calls anybody Cena? And you know, it's like, oh, he's there, Julius Caesar, and uh, you know, Shakespeare, he's there, yeah, he's there, you know, like, it's true, there are two of them, and uh, there's another play on this, you know, like in the 17th century, Cena, uh, you know, and, uh, but it's a family name, and, uh, and then I started looking at the genealogy, and there is, there is it's not a, uh, um, there's only one other Sina with, uh, that's in my father's same generation, and then it turned out that this grandfather that had been assa- his grandfather who had been assassinated was Sina's S-I-N-A. That is a Jewish name because they were migrants from Poland to Germany, and so all of a sudden, like realizing that um, my grandmother had named her first son after her father who had been murdered, twisted the name to make it sound let's say, Latin rather than Jewish, at a time when, because these these murders of Rat- Ratnow became big heroes for the Nazis. In 33, there, there was a monument built to them uh, right after the election of Hitler. <coughs> so I think that my grandmother, who was a very complicated character and not an easy person, um, lived with this um, kind of, both fear and displacement around my father that my father himself wasn't entirely conscious of. Um, And um, so it's interesting that when you get into these things um, there are discoveries that are actually meaningful even in terms of your own sort of, my own ideas about my own psychological makeup.
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Claudio Lomnus' book, Nuestra America. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Adam Reich and Peter Bierman's book, Working for Respect, Community and Conflict at Walmart. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy.
0: And I'm Olivia Bransco. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear, from soundofpicture.com.